Apple Knocker Radio. Greetings, friends. I hope you are all doing well. My next guest is Mitch Horowitz. Mitch Horowitz's name is all around the internet these days because he is both the writer and the star of a documentary about a book titled The Caballion. The documentary itself is also titled The Caballion. But that this film is hardly Horowitz's first rodeo. He has been one of the leading authors in what could generically be called the spiritual space for quite some time. Specifically, he's probably the most prominent, I can't think of anybody else that could compete with him, the most prominent figure in the in new thought, in modern new thought, with new thoughts, capital N, capital T. It's uh, Norman Vincent Peale, Napoleon Hill. If I were to try to conceptualize it to somebody who's never heard of it, I would say it's kind of like positive thinking, positive affirmations, but dealt with in much more detail, much more seriousness, much more nuance, and potentially um, much more impact. Horowitz treats these subjects both from a um, historical and a philosophical perspective, uh, by which I mean he digs into the history of of this movement in the United States because New Thought is a distinctly American spiritual tradition. Um, But he also deals with it philosophically, by which I mean he asks, does New Thought actually work? How How can this be working if this evidence suggests that it does work? How could you use it to improve your own life, et cetera, et cetera? Um, some, some of his works that come to mind are One Simple Idea and The Miracle Club. The Miracle Club was actually a book that I was reading when uh, I was, wanted to launch Apple Knocker Radio. It's actually part of the inspiration for this channel. I am a fan of New Thought, and I'm a very big fan of Mitch Horowitz's work. But the book that Horowitz and I discuss in the upcoming interview that you're about to see is actually not about New Thought. He's made a little bit of a deviation. It is instead about Uncertain Places, Essays on Occult and Outsider Experiences, which will be released soon from Inner Traditions. Um, Like I said, it's a deviation from his usual work, but I don't want to get into it because I want Mitch Horowitz to get into it because he gave a killer interview. Um, The guy, every question that I ask, like, bam, he just comes with these deep, eloquent, well-thought responses and... um, I'm just going to quit quit yapping because I just want to share it with you. It's a great interview. I think you are all going to really enjoy it. And um, I suggest for people who are or are not fans of Mitch Horowitz's work to check this out. Also to check out his other uh, books on New Thought, such as One Simple Idea and The Miracle Club. He's got a lot of great books to his name. But um, that's about it. Peace out, my friends. And uh, I hope you are all having tremendous 2022s. All right. Peace out. All right. So before screwing into some of the details I wanted to talk about, a general question I had was that it's always seemed to me like you've achieved uh, something pretty rare in your space, which is that you have a kind of a mainstream credibility that I think a lot of people in the esoteric, alternative, spiritual, whatever you want to call it, in the sphere don't have. And, um, you know, you got there a lot through your New Thought uh, books. And this is to, to my I followed your career for years. So this is to my observation, um, and it seems to me that was based on your kind of your your historical scholarship is kind of beyond reproach, right? And so, with that foundation, it feels like it allows you to start exploring these ideas of like, well, how does new thought actually work? And so you have this credibility, but then you've come out with this book, 
which is, I mean, you're pushing all the limits, man. And you're, um, yeah, you're pushing all the limits. And I'm just curious, what made you, what's the timing? Why now? Well, uh, first of all, thank you very much for that, that question and your observations. Why now? Um, my search and my work are one and the same. And I tend to reflect on the written page, whatever it is I'm exploring individually. And I, I dive into the deep end of the pool when I'm exploring things, as I think is evident to most of my readers. And really, there's no sense of timing involved exactly in anything that I do, so much as it is a reflection of what I'm going through, what I'm exploring at a given moment. If I don't bring to the page what I'm personally wrestling with, then I'm, I'm dead. I mean, that, 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 that's what gives me energy, passion, sustenance, and frankly, personal joy. So I almost never consider questions of a timing or should I hold back on this piece or should I hold back on this statement so much as I'm kind of broadcasting real time in terms of the topics that I'm exploring so really there was a certain juncture at which I felt I wanted to amass some of the essays and lectures that I had been working on and that a collection like Uncertain Places would be a good vehicle for that and I really just wanted it to be reflective of what I felt were the best statements I had made up to that point in time. And of course, the tricky thing of writing an anthology is six months later, you produce an essay or something and say, oh, wow, I wish I could have included that. But you can't, you can't chase your own tail and, and you have to make a statement when you feel you're, you're ready. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I love it. To me, it's a mark of a true independent thinker that you've, uh, you've kind of been uh, censored or at least uh, attacked by basically every every side of the spectrum. And it's funny because while reading your book, I was also listening to Cosmic Trigger, Trigger by Anton Wilson or Robert Anton Wilson. And um, he went through the same thing. It was like everybody thought that he was on the other side. And I just um, I find that kind of funny. But also, it's got to be a little stressful for you, huh? Well, it, at times it is stressful, but it's always rewarding because there are people who understand that I am trying to enunciate a widely variegated view of life. So, for example, in uncertain places, I promulgate my own outlook on a esoteric iteration of Satanism and immediately when you press a hot button like that people want to put you into a certain category at the same time I was very recently asked to provide an endorsement which I did for a very good and ingenuous biography of the televangelist Oral Roberts on whom I've also written mm. I have no brief against either evangelical Christianity or various Christian expressions what I'm interested in is the search and I've discussed the topic of Satanism for example on a podcast sponsored by the Seventh-day Adventist Church and it was a terrific mm. conversation so I don't 
believe that there are any authentic walls and barriers for the individual, myself or anybody else, who is engaged in an independent spiritual or ethical search. So there are times certainly where people rush to put you in a box. I've had that kind of episode occur more than I can recount. And it can be frustrating because all of us want to be seen. It's very painful to feel unseen. And yet the the other side of that is that there are always readers and individuals who understand the full breadth of what one is attempting. So, you know, you, you, you have to accept both ends of the stick. Hmm. And so you, you mentioned, obviously just mentioned the evangelical um, people that you've talked to. I'm curious. I don't think I've, I've, it, I'm, this may have happened, but I, I read a lot of books. I don't recall ever seeing you um, discuss Christian, uh, esoteric Christianity. Um, what, do you, what are your thoughts on that? Well, for example, I, I don't know that it would qualify as esoteric Christianity, but just before we began uh, this discussion, I completed a draft of a piece on the 70th anniversary of Norman Vincent Peale's book, Power of Positive mm. Thinking, hardly something that would be seen as esoteric. And yet, Peel himself actually did incorporate mystical, transcendentalist, and esoteric ideas uh, into his book, which he integrated with a more traditional Bible-based Christianity. And I have a very calico view of Peel. Peel had highs and lows as a thinker, as a man, and I feel he needs to be taken on balance. So I write about Peel that way. I certainly write about mystical Christian figures uh, in my book, One Simple Idea, which is a history of the positive mind movement. And I'm very critical of facets of Christian thought, particularly as they've become overly familiar, overly habituated in the public mind through dint of repetition, which is a danger facing all ethical and spiritual outlooks, whether ancient or recent. We tend to associate truth or compass points of the search with familiarity, which very often comes through a ordinary cultural process of something just being translated or repeated so many times that we are bound to think of it as an absolute. Like if someone said the phrase, true happiness comes from within. I, I Almost everyone uh, in the Western world would nod their heads in agreement with that because it seems as healthful as washing your hands or eating your vegetables. And yet I believe it falls to seekers in every generation to verify principles like that for themselves. So I'm very respecting of and interested in mystical Christian variants, including contemporary ones like the Pentecostal or charismatic movements. I might have profound differences with such congregations from a social perspective, but I'm very aroused by the manner in which those congregants are interested in a kind of here and now experience of the extra physical. Uh, and that might take a very, very wide variety of forms, but they're not interested in a standard call and response or by the numbers liturgical Christianity so much as they want to experience something. And I'm deeply sympathetic to that approach and I'm very desirous of having exchanges with such people because we're both 
involved in the search and I don't want us to get hung up on which team one belongs to because there are no teams as, as far as I'm concerned. The question is whether an individual discovers something that is serviceable in his or her life and that results in desired changes in conduct, relationship, experiences, and so forth. Hmm. Uh, so one of the parts in the book that uh, I love, you're, you're, there's an interview, a transcript of an interview with you and uh, David Lynch, yep. in which you, you're conducting the interview and he's the guest. Yep. And you mentioned in there um, the, the cowboy scenes from Mulholland Drive, and that happens to be um, every, the whole cowboy character in that film. It's one of my favorite pieces of cinema ever. I've, I've contemplated and thought about it. It was so cool that you brought it up. And um, so we got Lynch's response, but I was wondering, could you say, uh, talk a little bit more about why that scene is so intriguing to you personally? Sure, it's from the movie Mulholland Drive, which is probably my favorite of all of Lynch's work. And in that movie, there's a hotshot director, Adam Kesher, who finds that his life is falling apart and he's staying at this down and out hotel in downtown Los Angeles and he's called up to a, a, a ranch uh, late at night to meet with this mysterious figure known only as the cowboy and uh, in a, a, a darkly lit uh, clearing uh, in the ranch the cowboy approaches Adam and says to him um, the way a man's life will go uh, depends uh, chiefly on his attitude is that something you might agree with and uh, Adam goes, uh, sure, in a kind of glib way. And the cowboy says to him, uh, did you answer that way because uh, uh, you thought that's what I wanted to hear or is that what you sincerely believe? And Adam says, that's what I uh, sincerely believe. And the cowboy asks him, would you just think with me for a little bit? And, and Adam goes, okay, I'm thinking, again, in this glib style. And the cowboy says, no, no, you're not thinking. You're just being a smart aleck. And he is trying to talk to Adam about living with a certain sense of principle, a certain ingenuousness. And Adam can't understand him at all. And this is a very, very important point, I think, for people to get, which is that all of us, all of us are inflicted with this malady of human nature, which is that we're unable to see principles in another person that we don't possess in ourselves. So a cynic like Adam wants to view the cowboy, needs to view the cowboy through the cynical lens, the self-serving lens with which Adam leads his own life. He takes accomplishments seriously, but he doesn't take principles seriously. In fact, he would smirk at it. We see this again and again, where for example, you can't perceive honesty within another person. You can't perceive sincerity within another person unless you harbor that yourself. The unethical person views honesty as a kind of weakness or as a trick or as a ruse. And that, in some respects, is the crux of the scene for me. And I, I was once sharing a meal with David and some other people, and I said to him, that that scene was so deeply meaningful for me. I felt it captured, in a sense, the whole outlook that I attempt uh, to bring to my own life. And I went through a phase where I thought of that scene probably every single day for several years. And 
and David really smiled and, and lit up and, and, and I suppose he felt that he as an artist was getting across the point that he wished to make. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I brought that scene up with him in that interview. I, I think it's just a tremendous statement. And I think I said in the interview, and I meant it, that if we as a human civilization for some strange reason lost all of our guardrails uh, in terms of ethical or philosophical guidelines, um, everything that we rely upon as a statement of truth were somehow lost to us and we were walking around in this amnesiac way and we had just that one scene as a means of personal guidance we would make it that would be sufficient that would be enough that's how deeply and strongly i responded to that passage of the movie so that it's it's lodged very deeply in my psyche hmm. yeah I, I loved getting to talk to somebody who's also been as just fascinated by that scene as i have been i've also wondered why did lynch choose to use such an arch- archetypal character as a cowboy like anybody could have delivered that and it came from the a cowboy I, yeah. That I have also thought about why he would choose to do that. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, uh, Lynch grew up in Missoula, Montana. That might have reminded him of some of the men around him as he was growing up. And he did say that one day in his office he was speaking to an assistant and he found himself speaking as the cowboy spoke. And he, he suddenly started writing it down or asking the assistant to write it down. And the manner in which he was speaking was that of the cowboy. And when you talk to David, you encounter somebody who is, on one hand, a very, very sophisticated man and a very complex man. But on the other hand, who puts things in a very simple, direct way. And... He is unafraid of smiling. He is unafraid of showing appreciation. There's not this aloofness about the man. He's approachable. And I think he saw the cowboy perhaps as a mixture of those traits. I'm only speculating. Mm. And he may have seen the cowboy as, as, again, similar to some of the figures he admired growing up. Hmm. Yeah, well, while you were talking about that... um what might seem kind of almost contradictory in a way because lynch is such a, a avant-garde uh surrealistic guy to, to the way people see him but then he has those kind of grounded almost old world sensibilities yeah there's also while reading your book um you talk about loyalty which i i really like because i you're i kind of think of you and lynch as the same way in that aspect um you don't hear people talk about loyalty anymore. And yeah. um, could you just talk a little bit about loyalty right now? Of course, you know, again, you know, we as a culture have this ersatz seriousness where we think that talking about things like loyalty is somehow corny or obfuscating or simplistic. And I break with that altogether. I think there are certain primal values that we should really try to learn to live with again. I also speak about civility. I don't think we as a human civilization are gonna make it if we as individuals don't get in front of the sarcasm, the insults, the rhetorical questions that have become the lingua franca online. And so take loyalty, for example. 
as soon as you utter the term loyalty, a whole fraction of our population will say, oh, you're talking about corruption? What if I you know, work for an evil person? Should I be loyal to him? And I always feel like that's evasive because the truth is most of us on a day-to-day -day scale do not encounter questions of ultimate evil. Most of us are dealing with much smaller, more intimate questions, and that's the judgment ground on which we have to stand. So my feeling is before we start to extrapolate and get into these faraway questions that frankly most of us very, very rarely deal with, I'm presuming that most of the listeners, for example, right now are in positions of reasonable material comfort, reasonable physical safety. They're not in a position where they're rendering judgment at Nuremberg. They're simply getting through their day and making decisions, sometimes very automatically, sometimes without any forethought as to whether they're going to do something to keep their word, whether they're going to show up on time for something, whether they're going to take care of a problem that they had promised somebody yesterday that they were going to take care of, whatever it may be. And I, I think loyalty figures into that insofar as a person's capacity to keep his or her word is the primary determinant of who they are. And we can run away from that and we successfully run away from that all the time in terms of preserving our own self-image. But for example, if a friend or a colleague or whomever uh, encounters some setback in life, do we, do we run away from them or do we stand there uh, with them in some way that we're capable of? And very frequently this occurs online when people are assailed or attacked online. Do we uh, rubberneck and, and enjoy the show of seeing somebody humiliated or we, do we say I'm not going to participate in that whether that means silence whether that means support uh, that m might mean any number of things whether that means in withholding judgment until we've investigated the situation ourselves and, and can arrive at some sort of an independent judgment whatever it may be uh, I think that we lose sight of traits like loyalty to our own great detriment because people are often wondering how can I stand taller? How can I exercise more personal power? How can I find a sense of agency in the world? Well, you know, maybe one of the ways we can find that sense of agency is to experience the challenge, the difficulty, the consequences of um, keeping our word, behaving in a solidaristic or loyal manner, abstaining from trash talk, abstaining from participation in uh, entertainment that humiliates people, for example. These are steps that the individual can take this hour, this hour. And I challenge a listener, see if in doing so you don't stand taller. See if in doing so you don't feel more self-possessed. You don't feel more relaxed in the profoundest sense. You don't feel more comfortable in your own skin. I think behaving, trying to behave uh, with honor is uh, uh, the most obvious and yet the most overlooked key that we possess in pursuit of our own uh, sense of self-establishment, self-respect, self-possession. Hmm. Yeah, that actually, when I read One Simple Idea, that was 
the thing that made the biggest impression on me was how a lot of those early New Thought, well, basically all all the early New Thought uh, thinkers, they very much tied your um, material outcomes to the strength of your character, and the, the two things were like side by side, and uh, yeah, that really left a big impression on me. And it's 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 a challenging point of view, of course, and it's one that has a lot of holes and gaps in it because. I contend that we experience many different laws and forces. I've never liked right, right. that misappropriated phrase, which uh, comes distantly from the work of Emanuel Swedenborg, that there are no accidents. Swedenborg didn't mean that in the way that it gets used today. And I certainly don't believe that the outcomes people experience are a result strictly of attitude because we live under social forces that can be absolutely crushing. I believe we also live under accident and, and we encounter all kinds of countervailing forces in life that can be utterly, utterly overwhelming. And yet at the same time, we come back to the cowboy's principle that the way life goes for a person to a very great extent has something to do with the reflection of his or her own uh, psyche and I think to dismiss that and to walk away from that is to leave out a huge piece of the puzzle as is leaving out the puzzle of the diffuse laws and forces that we live under under which we have no control whatsoever uh, I think of people today who are victims of the civil war in Syria or horrific gang violence in Haiti or the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. Obviously, I'm 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 stating seismic circumstances, and there are lots of other smaller circumstances, such as a person who's stricken with uh, ill health or who's just born on the wrong side of a divide, over which he or she has no control whatsoever. And yet, at the same time, we possess and we function within a pool of forces that we rarely take full advantage of and among that pool uh, is the question of the potential causative abilities of uh, psyche or perception and so all right this is a it's a small part in the beginning of your uh, of uncertain places and um, but it's one I found so fascinating because I've never heard you talk about cryptids before. But in the book, you uh, you address uh, Belize and uh, cryptids I've never heard of before in an encounter you had. Could you just expand a little bit on that cryptid and on your experience? A cryptid is an anomalous uh, being or animal. You know, best example being or oh, the most common Bigfoot or Loch Ness monster or something. Um, I, I visited the nation of Belize a couple of times and spent time in the highlands and uh, people there frequently speak of these little men or alushas who live in the hills. We might call them leprechauns or fairies or what have you. And you'd be amazed at the very articulate, impressive, self-possessed people who will tell stories of encounters with these little men, which goes back generations in the nation of Belize. And I was just struck that every culture on earth, literally from Polynesia to Siberia, has its own legends of little people. And uh, this is taken very seriously by traditional-minded folk in Ireland, for example, a folklorist I work, I've worked with in the past named Eddie Lenahan helped uh, get a highway that was being constructed uh, rerouted, I think it was in the county Clare, 
uh, because it was it was as planned running through what was called a fairy bush or a, a domain of the little people or the other crowd as as Eddie and some traditional minded folks uh, referred to them and the notion was that uh, if you destroy the domain of these little people it'll cause accidents on the road and terrible mishaps will occur so uh, county authorities agreed to reroute the highway some people see that as a nod to superstition I see it as a healthful humility so I try to approach traditional cultures not with a suspension of my own values but but with a dose of, of humility and I referred to a little episode uh, at the beginning of the book where I started to uh, we were canoeing through a very isolated uh, ravine on a very very quiet river in the highlands and I was complaining about how the previous day I thought a taxi driver was trying to frighten us with stories about these little men and suddenly as I was voicing this a boulder from out of nowhere came crashing down the ravine and landed uh, several feet in front of us in the water and I thought well I better shut up because one of the traditions is that if you talk about the other crowd they appear and they can cause serious mischief so that was just a little episode that I shared yeah I, I found it very interesting though I do the the cryptid um, thing phenomena whatever you want to call it <clears throat> I feel like it does take some of your um, general ideas to their fullest limit because like we were just talking about the cowboy and you were saying how you believe in the cowboy and the new thought idea that to some degree our reality will begin to reflect our own consciousness right and something that's interesting to me about the cryptid phenomenon whatever you want to call it isn't the cryptids themselves it's the stories of the people that get really into cryptids because they end up so many of them the more obsessed they become the more weird stuff starts coming back at them. And you get a lot of these people that like John Keel and um, Holiday from the Goblin Universe, which I mentioned in our email. There's a guy named Nick Hinton, who's this young guy who uh, has this podcast right now. It, but it, the point is, I feel like a lot of these people become obsessed in reality, starts giving back really weird synchronicities and encounters and escalates stranger. And um, I feel like that is taking your idea of reality reflecting consciousness to like an extreme. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Well, it's interesting what makes an idea go viral. You know, in 1947, a commercial pilot in Washington State, Kenneth Arnold, saw what he described as a flying disc, and later the colloquialism flying saucer entered into the vernacular, and suddenly people are experiencing flying saucer sightings above Washington DC and New York City and Los Angeles and so forth and why does that idea go viral now of course to a hardened materialist he would just say well you know it's just the power of suggestion although other times I'll reference the power of suggestion and the same hardened materialist will say there's no such thing or what have you they like to use the word confirmation bias which is just a social sciences term for prejudice we all we all experience it it's just a facet of life now the problem with our thinking in modern western culture is that we tend to rely upon either or outlooks on reality to some extent this is the influence of aristotle who first began describing life as a polarity of opposites, real or unreal, um, material or ethereal, 
uh, visible or invisible and so forth and so on. And we tend to think that um, life is a binary stick, one end being false, one end being true, and it's our job to work out an equation where we can determine which end of the stick is 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 telling the story but a better view of life is that it's more of a continuum there isn't an either or answer to anything really you know very frequently when we have a personal problem we're searching for the magic bullet that will solve that problem problems arise from a complexity of causes and in many cases they have a complexity of solutions. Why would phenomena be any different? The notion that uh, something is just delusion or that it's absolute material reality is the kind of binary thought that we get hung up on. There could be any number of things going on and these things may not all be mutually exclusive. For example, some people will say that the placebo response is nothing but endorphins getting released in the body or inflammatory reducing enzymes or something of that nature. Well, that may be one of a dozen things that are going on. Maybe that's what the prayer response or what the spiritual appeal or what hopeful expectancy looks like in the body. There may be several other things that that show up in the body as well. We have theorized or named or identified one of them but there may be many, many such things going on and they may have a, a multiplicity of causes. So why do people around the world talk about the existence of uh, little men? Why do people who profess belief see more of these things? Again, easy answers leap to mind and I could come up with any one of them, but that doesn't mean that we describe the whole picture of all of what's going on. And in uncertain places, I venture a variety of theories and possibilities which may have to do with interdimensionality, which may have to do with the psyche's capacity to travel among different intersections of time, none of which are as far out as they sound when you consider the fact that uh, we know space-time is bendable, that time bends in conditions of extreme gravity or uh, velocities of at or near light speed. In fact, astronauts in our own era, while they're not moving anywhere near that quickly, do experience m minute decreases in the in the effects in the physical effects of of aging. These things are mm. absolutely factual, and we just had a trio of physicists who won the Nobel Prize in physics for. Uh, their refinement of Bell's theorem, which allows us to measure the way in which objects at great distances, either on the micro or the macro scale, tend to mirror each other, sometimes reversing electric or magnetic polarities uh, based upon what the other object is doing with no discernible connection between the two. So uh, a, a certain theorists have come up with uh, concepts like string theory, which postulates the existence of different uh, dimensions of space-time, which might explain some of the weird effects that we conventionally observe within our own setting of reality. And these questions are not as far off the grid uh, as they might appear. And I'm simply suspending the insistence on one explanation for uh, everything, which is kind of an affliction that you find within the culture of philosophical materialism, which holds that matter creates itself and that we live under standard 
Newtonian mechanics, and you also find it within the spiritual culture or the culture of philosophical ideal, idealism, which holds that perception is, is everything. Perception is reality shaping. That may be ultimately true, but there are a lot of intervening laws and forces that complicate the picture. So I'm asking, what would life look like if we weren't so attached in an orthodox and even unconsciously um, inert manner to thinking in terms of binary opposites? Hmm. So this uh, this was actually not a question that I had expected to ask, but something about your answer now made me think of it. The concept of the egregore has, over the last year, it seems, is being discussed a lot. Um, I've noticed that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I an uptick, yeah, yeah. What are your thoughts on it? Well, the egregore is a, a concept that you find within several traditions, including Tibetan Buddhism, the notion being that if uh, a talpa, it's call, called in Tibetan Buddhism, um, the notion being that the mind produces thought forms and that that these thought forms can actually become experiential if held to with sufficient uh, persistency and so that might be one way of addressing the question of why belief seems to produce experience again uh, the polarity is you know, the egregore is an absolute on one end of the belief scale and confirmation bias is an absolute on the other end of the belief scale. And what if both are true? What if a, a variety of things are going on uh, within the picture? And so I, I have noticed, it's interesting you said that over the past 12 or 18 months, discussions of egregores have increased. Uh, my colleague Gary Lackman uh, wrote a book on the Trump presidency called Dark Star Rising, which I had commissioned back in my publishing days. And uh, he explores the very interesting and innovative theory within that book that Trump is a kind of egregore of our collective psyche or of the psyche of, of, of his supporters. And so uh, uh, his work and, and, and the work of um, uh, some other uh, readers, um, uh, writers, excuse me, uh, have have helped, I think, introduce or reintroduce that theme into the public consciousness. But yeah, it's erupted just about everywhere, it seems to me, at least the byways and corners that I visit. Um, so it's a fascinating concept. I mean, again, it's, 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 it's almost an expression of an extreme, I don't mean extreme in a negative way, uh, of an extreme philosophical idealism that says... Okay. Uh, not only do you encounter things, but you might actually produce things based upon the persistence of thought or emotionally charged thought. Right. I think that's probably why the question popped into my head while you were given that last answer. Um, yeah, it's fascinating. It's interesting to watch. There's been some really, really good discussions on it. People really trying to wrestle with it and, and understand it, including some people I've seen coming at it from a materialist perspective. So I I always find that intriguing. Well, but, uh, you know, I, I, if I may, sorry for the yeah, interruption, yeah. I, I always uh, am on the lookout for parallels between contemporary and ancient thought. There isn't a neat family tree of ideas that runs between antiquity and modernity. Things get interrupted, things get forgotten, things get buried, things get suppressed. So you can't draw this neat family tree, for example, between what was going on among certain Gnostic sects in late antiquity and what's going on within the development of sex magic 
uh, in our alternative spiritual culture today, and yet you find parallel insights. And whenever I come across parallel insights, that's a scent trail that I'm always very interested in following because mm. if people who are separated by vast differences in geography and language and custom and culture arrive at similar ideas, I want to explore that. That could be a scent trail of some kind of truth. So we look at our ancient ancestors, for example, and we marvel at their virtuosity in calendars and astronomy and agriculture and even the roots of chemistry rooted in the term alchemy. And, and yet we don't spend sufficient time, I think, on their psycho-spiritual insights once they go off in a certain direction. You know, if, if, if the ancients spoke of forging relationships with unseen intelligences, deities, gods, and forging petitionary relationships and so forth, we don't, as a culture, pay too much attention to that kind of stuff today. And yet that governed the outlook of vast reaches of people for thousands of years. People whose work we read today, like Plato or Marcus Aurelius or a, a vast range of, of thinkers and figures from the Vedic tradition. I, 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 I'm not necessarily suggesting that if you read Marcus Aurelius, you have to go and start worshiping Jupiter, but I would not overlook the fact that Marcus did worship and venerate Jupiter, and I, I wouldn't overlook the fact that that was a basic foundational facet of human existence among ranges of civilizations at whom we marvel for thousands of years. And if there's nothing that is violative about a certain belief, if there's nothing that detracts from the humanity or the safety or the physical or emotional well-being of another person, that is an area for experiment for those of us who are on the path. So I encourage us to take a second look at some of the ethical, spiritual, religious practices of antiquity and ask whether these things deserve revisitation. We certainly marvel at the epic achievements of ancient humanity and we pay attention to the psychological parables and myths of ancient humanity and I think customs, traditions, modes of worship again provided they're non-violative are something that provide a, 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 a seedbed for experiment if an individual is drawn in that direction. Hmm. Um, this is kind of more a more minor question. The uh, the title of the book, Uncertain Places, um, Occult and Outsider uh, Experiences. I, yep. It just made me wonder, is the outsider, was that an intentional nod to Colin Wilson? Oh, that's interesting you would ask. I wasn't intentionally referencing Wilson there, but I was referring to things that occur outside of condoned inquiry within our world. I assume you've read Outsider by Colin. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm that was an admirer a, of Wilson's. Yeah. yeah, that was a very uh, influential book when I was a teenager, so I was just curious about that. Um, all right, so in the book, part, one of the essays in the book is the censored preface 
to one simple idea that was released in China. And uh, I, I really enjoyed reading the preface. But you also mentioned there a huge portion of the book was axed out. And uh, yep. I'm curious, what, what was left of the book after they took everything out? It's hard for me to know because the, 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 the publisher in Shanghai that was translating the book and that did translate the book in part into Mandarin uh, got very silent after government censors came down on them. I was told that government censors, uh, my book One Simple Idea, uh, for those of your listeners who don't know, is a history and analysis <coughs> of the positive mind movement. And <clears throat> I go from its roots in transcendentalist New England to its flourishing as a uh, self-help modality across the world today and 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 I consider it both sympathetically and critically uh, both historically and practically and I was contacted uh, by a well it was a Chinese uh, publisher uh, Shanghai based publisher who actually licensed the rights from my original publisher Random House and I was paired up with a translator in Shanghai with whom I had many, many uh, Zoom sessions, or back at that time it was Skype, uh, a lot like this one. And we would go through the book and it was a wonderful experience because she was someone who was raised in an officially atheistic society, although vestiges of Buddhism, animism, ancestor worship have survived in Chinese society even though um, the Communist Party ideology is officially atheistic and public displays of religion are verboten. Um, and it was fascinating to talk over and make an effort to explain some of these concepts to somebody who grew up in a world where a spiritual or a, even a therapeutic language was not known as as we know it today so we might toss off a term like soul but to the translator that term was uh, very opaque and we worked very hard she worked very very hard translating the book and uh, I was asked uh, to write this new preface uh, uh, describing the new thought or positive mind outlook for Chinese readers. I was very, very excited by the whole thing. And then I was told that, that the publisher, as is practice uh, in China, had to submit the book prior to publication to the government office of censorship and that uh, the government censors had cut about 38% or so of the book. Um, my further inquiries were somewhat stymied because I think the publisher at that point was worried about getting on the wrong side of government censors. So the book did come out in a truncated form. Uh, my understanding is that references to uh, metaphysics were largely mm. cut out. Uh, such things are considered really off the grid by government censors in China. And so it was a real splash of water in the face and, and a realization that, you know, here I was spending months uh, over Skype sessions with a, a really wonderful translator with whom it was very um, easygoing to communicate. And, and, and she was very eager to get it right, get my meaning across, 
all kinds of things that it was super easy to talk about. She was telling me that this was, I guess, before Trump became president, but while he was running for office. And um, he had a lot of admirers among young people in Shanghai who saw hmm. him as a kind of entrepreneur, a kind of... Uh, um, a figure of achievement, a figure of accomplishment, and she told me she was part of a, a little clatch of people uh, who would go out uh, for dumplings uh, every night, uh, one 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 night each week, and talk politics. And they called themselves uh, the Trumplings in, in huh. tribute to uh, to Trump, and uh, and they were very excited uh, by him actually for for reasons of their own, and. Um, you know, we could share all these cultural references. I mean, you know, I got a kick out of the whole uh, Trumplings thing, and uh, and 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 it, it was a very easygoing exchange. But then you realize that these government censors form the backdrop to life, and it was very sobering. Hmm. Yeah, it's a shame because it seems like with everything that restrictive, one simple idea could do a lot of really interesting things if people started uh, reading that and considering the possibility that they have uh, so much influence over their own lives. So Yeah, I guess that's what the Communist Party did not want. Interesting right. things are not what they want. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. That's a shame. Um, all right, so we're at about an hour. So I've got two more questions. The last question will be a chance for you to just, just plug the book. Always, It's always the best way to outro, in my opinion. But um, before that, the Ouija board. Uh, I've read you've discussed the Ouija board multiple sure. times. I, I, love, I, love, yeah. I love your thoughts on it. Could you just, um, though you do give the definitive answer in this essay that um, while you know the Ouija history, you're not personally interested in actually using it. So uh, you kind of put that to, to rest. But um, could you just explain a little bit about your own experience with Ouija, your own interest in Ouija, and your, your final takeaway of the Ouija board? Ouija has such a haunting mythology. When I was a kid growing up in Queens in the 1970s, you know, you say the word Ouija board and everybody's blood would go cold. <laughs> and a lot of people had authentically creepy stories about the Ouija board. There's a... Uh, an Academy-nominated documentary director who I know who told me just blood-curdling stories about her use of the Ouija board when she was a little kid and how she and wow. a friend used to huddle in a, this dark bathroom in the friend's house <laughs> and they contacted a, a young girl named Candelin who had died in a fire in the 19th century and that they became very engrossed in these, these daily after-school readings over the Ouija board and everyone of a certain age seems to have creepy stories about the Ouija board. And I was always just fascinated at how some object that was a carryover from the age of spiritualism or talking to the dead in the United States in the mid to late 19th century could be shrink wrapped, put in a box, barcoded, put on the shelves at Toys R Us or wherever. And, and yet its mystery was untainted. It, it still gripped people's fears and imaginations. And I really always wanted to know where it came from, how it became popularized. And I was always curious about all the creepy stories. I have used the board. There was no levitation or, uh, you know, contacting of Captain Howdy. Not that I'm particularly, <laughs> not that I'm aware of at least. Um, <laughs> And, and people do, of course, have strange and remarkable experiences. The, the Pulitzer-winning poet, um, 
who wrote uh, Changing Light at Sandover. Uh, gosh, his name is escaping me at the moment. But he vowed um, that uh, his greatest works were channeled through a Ouija board and that uh, this was an absolutely real experience that that he and his partner had every night for almost 20 years they would they would sit down and and use a homemade Ouija board to uh, connect with this ancient Greek Jewish figure named Ephraim and uh, uh, the poet um, oh, I can't believe his name is is uh, escaping me. You'd, you'd recognize it in an instant. Do you remember it? Um, no, actually, I've been trying to, to think of it as you're talking. Yeah, yeah, it'll it'll come to me. Um, here, since uh, we're online, I'm just going to go ahead and look it up. I, I, yeah, I have the book right behind me. Uh, let's see. Changing Light at Sandover. James Merrill. Okay. Um, yeah, I was just blanking on the name. And uh, his father was one of the co-founders of the brokerage firm Merrill Lynch. Um, so Merrill vowed with total ingenuousness that he and his partner David Jackson sat down uh, at their kitchen table at their home in Stonington, Connecticut, and with the help of a homemade Ouija board, basically constructed uh, the epic poetry for which Merrill had uh, won uh, the Pulitzer. And a lot of critics uh, dismissed Merrill's stories as just theater, with the exception of, uh, well, one of the rare exceptions of uh, the literary critic uh, Harold Bloom, who was a big influence on me. And Bloom referred to the book as an occult splendor and took very seriously Merrill and Jackson's story. And Merrill in response to a question from an interviewer at one point said, look, uh, let's say there's no supernatural quality to the board. Let's just say that the board is channeling the innards of your own psyche. Well, in such a case, how extraordinary the mediums become. What are the strange byways and dark pathways of the psyche that go unacknowledged? And for a poet and a man of letters of the caliber of Merrill, uh, whatever was unlocked uh, produced the poetry that, that made him famous, made him read all over the world. And Changing Light at Sandover is, as, as, as I regard it, one of the greatest works of modern epic poetry ever written. Uh, so Ouija is not just a, a toy that belongs to pajama parties and uh, basement playrooms and you know creepy stories that kids like to tell one another but it's had a very strange and lasting impact on our culture it's had a strange and lasting impact on other cultures in the nation of Vietnam today the third largest religion following Buddhism and Catholicism is Kaudaism. Kaudaism is a Vietnamese term for uh, religion of the high palace and in the 1920s the religion of Kaudaism was founded through a Ouija board. One of its founding patron saints is none other than the French novelist Victor Hugo, himself a habitué of seances, and the founders of the religion of Kaudaism felt they were contacting Hugo and, and other ghostly figures through the Ouija board, and they founded their religion based upon it. Uh, most Americans are unaware that, in fact, uh, the Kaudaist movement uh, maintained its own private militia and they first uh, uh, sided with the French 
in their conflict with the Viet Cong and then later sided with the Americans during the Vietnam War and the Cao Dai, members of the Cao Dai religion and their private militia were, were actually U.S. allies until the very, very end of the war in 1975, at which point they were forced underground. They were among the U.S.'s most stalwart allies. And their religion, say what you will, came through uh, channeling what they saw as spiritual messages by way of a Ouija board. So these strange little objects, these novelties, can have a much richer history and impact uh, than first appears. Hmm. All right, my final question. So you, you've been censored by the CCP. You've been blacklisted by New Agers. You've been <laughs> accused of being part of the Illuminati by... you. Everybody's come at you at some point. You've got fans and detractors seemingly on all sides, which is really fascinating. Um, and I think it's probably going to... Uh, be amplified with this book because you touched on so many controversial things in there. So if you were to, what's your elevator pitch for the book? What, no, not an elevator pitch. What would you conceptualize as the, the main spirit that you're trying to get across in this book by collecting these essays? The indestructibility of the search and the sanctity of the search as the most important facet of human existence and there aren't a lot of people who immediately grok to the idea of a spiritual or ethical search and the book will not be understood or, or liked or appreciated by them uh, very few of us whatever cultural or religious background we identify with very few of us are really open to the nature of a question the authentic nature of a question one of the things I say in the book is that <clears throat> radical exploration is not approbation to just ask anything. I have guardrails, I have principles, I don't believe in anything that violates the dignity of another human being. Uh, I don't believe in anything that compromises the safety of another human being. The uh, uh, only subject of my experiments is, is my own person. But if one comes from the perspective of pure questioning, and, and those principles are, are very important to me, others might have another set of principles that they could defend and enunciate. But for me, with those principles at my back, as best I'm able, I want to ask every possible question about the depth and the agency of being human. And that's what the book is dedicated to. Man, that's awesome. And um, that's Ryan Hour and Mitch. Thank you so much, man. This Pleasure. is amazing. And uh, best of luck with the book. I hope as much controversy as it brings, it also brings <laughs> you success and interesting you. experiences. I appreciate so, it. Thank you so much. Yeah, awesome, man. Thank you very much, and I hope you have a great remainder to your week. Thank you, and these questions were great. I, I feel the freshness uh, that you brought to the table. Many of these uh, are things I have not been asked before, so I really appreciate that. Thank you.